Hello, Brunel. Hi, Adam. A pleasure to have you on. Now, before we go into all of the wonderful things we want to talk about today, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your interests? Um, I'm called the Water Maverick. I love water. Not particularly clean water. I like dirty water. I think that's where life starts, is with dirty water. But my research is focused on how to clean water and how to get value from it. And through my research, I've very much become a systems thinker because I think we need a whole functioning ecosystem to clean water, to keep it clean, and to provide value in multiple ways. I think that's about me. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's succinct. It is refreshingly so, because sometimes my guests like to drone on and on about themselves, and so do I. I guess it's really hard to stop talking when you're passionate about something. Exactly. I don't fault them. Water is a real is a real problem, and it's something that, unless you live in California, maybe you're not, or the Sahara, you might not be really acutely aware of it. Well, you're probably even more acutely aware of it. Um, we're more than 70% water, and we need water. Um, in South Africa, we have a lot of power failures, and there's a huge industry, which is really interesting, um, jumping up about how to provide your own power and how to live off the grid, with solar and with wind. But if we have water shortages, which we're in a very intense drought at the moment, there's no way to just suddenly create water from somewhere else. So you very quickly become very aware of it. Um, and if you can think, you could probably go, I think, 40 days without food. But I don't think you can go for much more than a day without water. So it's really important. Now, the issue has serious economic ramifications. You're probably... I mean, I'm undoubtedly familiar with the concept of virtual water, mm -hmm. of how nations like the United States, by exporting beef to countries like Japan, are in essence exporting their water. Yes. And most all of us have grown weary of the tirades about how much water it takes to raise cattle, but it's absolutely true. It's very inefficient. Yes, and it does use a lot of water. So what I'm trying to see is, if you use that water more than once for more than one thing, um, you're effectively reducing your virtual water footprint. Um, and I'm wondering about the beef. So I think we should all eat less meat. Um, myself, I do eat meat, but I try to limit it to celebrations. Um, but if you look at an ecosystem again, so if you look at cattle that graze in a natural field that fertilizes the soil through moving through it, um, harvesting the plants that grow there, plants that are naturally supposed to grow there, that's probably perennial, um, that's suited to their gut. So grain is not suited to cattle's gut, and that's part of the problem. Um, then the water that you use to feed that cow gets used so many times in the soil and in the, um, gr uh, the pasture that they're feeding that the actual footprint of that um, piece of cattle would actually be quite less. And instead of trying to limit your footprint on the land, you're actually constructively building the land and you're thriving rather than being sustainable. So that's the sort of 
feeling that I want to promote through my research and through what I do. So at this moment, there are some major improvements we could make to the way that we manage water in agriculture and in municipalities. And of course, the majority of water goes towards agriculture. That's correct. Um, that's a tricky problem, though, because as we live in cities, um, we do become more specialized. And so um, the way that we want to grow things are more monocrop and we need to transport it, which has its own water footprint. Um, if we look at more integrated, um, uh, I want to say urban agriculture, but it's I'm not asking everyone to become a farmer because we do live in an urban environment where we do specialize, which means that not every person wants to do the same thing as every other person. Um, but we do need to become closer to our food so that we can understand where it comes from and understand what impacts have. And I think that would fundamentally change the way that we do things. Um, personally, I don't think monocrop agriculture is a good thing at all because it limits that ecosystem services uh, that your soils and your land and your animals and your plants that's on it can give. Um, and it, I mean, it's a, it's a big complicated problem and that doesn't really give anybody any solutions to work with. Um, and I'm certainly not smart enough to give ideas. Uh, from my side, personally, what I try to do is um, grow a bit of food so I don't have a solution to the grains, but I could grow vegetables where I am or in community areas. I also have a few chickens um, because the chickens can mimic what animals do uh, in terms of eating the weeds, eating the pests, so, that, so you don't have to use pesticides, which has a huge impact on water and um, with chemicals that it introduces there. Uh, and they fertilize the soils, which makes the soils better able to hold water. So again, it becomes this whole ecosystem. And I think um, very closely linked thing to agriculture is this whole idea of urban planning. Um, and colleagues of mine are working on a concept they call water-sensitive urban design. So if you start thinking about cities and agriculture as part of this ecosystem, uh, I think that'll go a long way. You know, And each of our role in that ecosystem and how best you think about it, as, as opposed to thinking just individualistically, or thinking that it's somebody else's problem, or that, for example, government needs to take care of it. It's, everyone has a role to play. Are there certain incentives, though, that governments should lay down in the meantime? Oh, I'm not a policy advocate. I don't know. Um, I do know that a lot of times incentives tend to go the wrong way because people find loopholes <laughs> to, <laughs> to not follow them. Um at the moment, I, I, and this is very personal opinions, and I mean, experts might be able to or might disagree with me, but I feel like if um, synthetic subsidies are removed so that we see the true cost of things, that might go one way. Um, so, for example, fuel is very heavily subsidized um, and energy, and so you can do things that other people could do more responsibly, but they can't charge the cost um, that it costs them to produce it because these poorer practices are subsidized. Um, for like, I'm thinking soybeans or, or grains. Like, let's come back to the cattle and grain example. Grain is subsidized, and so people just feed it to cattle, even though it's probably not the best um, food for them, but it's the cheapest. So if you stopped um, uh, 
synthetics not the right word artificially subsidizing the grains then people would find better things to to feed the cattle but this has the knock-on effect um, that the food will become more expensive which makes your vulnerable sectors of the population threatened um, so that is a, a thing but I think it's something that we need to look at and maybe subsidize something else to to cover up the shortfall um, the other thing I've now forgotten um, there was one other thing we could do. Yes, I think generally even economists can agree upon the fact that removing perverse incentives is easier than creating good ones. Yeah, I think um, government's role is to try and facilitate and not get in too involved and get in the way. Um, yeah, I, th- I think government shouldn't get it shouldn't be a nanny state, um, but uh, yeah, two hands off means that the market takes control, and the market doesn't have a conscience, so that's probably not the best way either. But thankfully, I'm not in government, so I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> but the issue of supplying everyone with clean drinking water is intimately tied in with managing states and cities. Water privatization is a big debate right now, and it has a mixed history of success. Mm-hmm. In some cases, it's done quite well. In others, it's been a dismal failure. Yeah. Um, and even in the water sector with water professionals, there's not a um, a clear consensus about what to do. And I don't have a particular opinion either way. I think it comes back to governance and, and integrity. Um, if we talk about, you know, the, the the elephant in the room is that people talk about population and that there's just too many people to provide, for example, water for all of them. But that's not really true. Um, I think I think the more affluent you get and the more industrialized you get, the more water you use. And that's not necessarily, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, I think as we get richer, we just feel entitled to use more of it. So we definitely need to limit our water use Um and just try and use less. Uh, maybe that was my other point that I was forgetting. But try to use less and, and be smarter with a little bit that you do use. I feel like we're using an immense amount of water because we don't know about it. It's hidden, and so we don't have to worry about it. Um, yeah, so if we if we use it less, then we, you know, it, it sounds very try to say, but really get closer to nature because that's fundamentally what we are. We're natural. And understanding how nature works would would help us become more responsible about what we do. I think, but a lot of people also need to see that the water they use doesn't just come from their faucets. It's also when they buy food. It's when they buy new laptops, like the one I'm looking at right now. It's when they do. It's when they do almost anything. They are using water. Yeah. Yeah, and, and consuming and having a lot of clothes. Um, yeah, everything that you do. And it's, I mean, it gets very esoteric because I think when I think about all the things that we do and then how to do it less, it's, we're very complex beings. So just saying, oh, don't buy that much clothes or don't buy the new laptop is, is not a good advice. Um, and I guess the best way to go around that is to say, but what are you trying to get when you do those things? Um, and I, I think it's a, a sense of worth and feeling a sense of belonging. 
Uh, and these are things that fundamentally you can't get from buying things. So it becomes this, your feedback never gets back. So you just want to use more and more and more. Um, so I think in, in, to, in order to know, so there's two things. Know what's in the things that you're buying. Maybe that's a bit of a, the whip bit and, and the disincentive. And then the incentive would be to get closer and finding out about what you really want and going for that directly which most of the time doesn't involve buying anything. Before we go too far into self-help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, w- I would be fine with doing a show about that too. And I, I think that a lot of people, in fact, most of the people here in the States and I'm sure elsewhere, are aware of the energy they're using and the water they're using. In fact, the majority of middle-aged men in this country are absolutely obsessed with their power bills. Mm. So that's a really great example because with a power bill, you can see it. Like, so in South Africa, we're moving a lot towards um, prepaid electricity meters. I don't know what you have in the U.S. So you can see that little number you know, decreasing as your electricity is being used up. So it's a very good incentive to try and save because you can see it. Um, and a lot of uh, innovation has been aimed at how can we make it more visible in ways that almost gamify it. But I think that's a very good thing to think about because as humans, we like gamification. We like seeing our projects. Um, we like seeing instant grat- gratification. So I think in terms of trying to be responsible about your use, if you can see how that is being affected, and that could be anything from water meters, electricity meters. And, and remember, electricity and energy has a very large footprint as well. If, even if you focus on that and you're not interested in water, you're probably still doing a good thing. <laughs> um, and labeling on food and labeling on products to see how much water it used, as well as giving um, opportunities to reduce that because if you're just telling people how bad they are and how bad the water use is without giving them options to improve it they're just going to get demotivated but i think that gamification option is really a good idea um and if people people feel in control of their own consumption then which is also very good yes i right now i'm picturing an android app of some kind that vaguely resembles any number of candy crush clones with the cartoonish little figures and maybe it's attached to a sensor near your main water valve and it says you used x number of gallons this month it comes down to almost a virtual reality or augmented reality sort of um thinking Right, and each month the person can sort of outdo themselves. And one of the arguments that I hear frequently from libertarians, which we mentioned earlier, is if you allowed water to assume some sort of real market price, people would take it as seriously as their power bill. Yeah, the the concern about linking an economic value to something that has different or some would argue more fundamental values is that you reduce everything to an envir- to an economic value, um, which gives you back to if you're affluent enough, then you just pay the money and you don't care. Um, I would say there's a place for for that sort of market value, 
But I think we're also, and politicians know this very well, we're not rational beings and we're not solely driven by economics. So you could give a value to water, like trust or reputation that isn't economically driven, and I think would work equally well, especially in something like the sharing economy where your reputation really becomes everything. Temporarily, when we were talking about the app, I was thinking about a network that showed you how much water everyone in your vicinity is consuming, but I'm not sure if everyone would be all in to this idea. I think it comes down to, again, being in control of being able to alter your water usage. If you're not in control and you can't do anything about it, it just becomes shameful. Um you know, I mean, when do you feel ashamed? When something is not the way that you want it and you can't really do anything about it. And that's my opinion. I think if if it's easy for people to do it and they don't do it, um, I think you'd have to be a really closed-off person not to get involved. Um, and I think part of gamification strategies is to get it easy for people to get involved and find that instant gratification to offset the potential for shame or not feeling so good. So like so, social media. Exactly like social media, yes. Yes, people willingly and knowingly share all sorts of things about themselves there. And this game would allow me to proudly say, I haven't showered in a month. Look at how much water I saved. I don't think any of us wants to go back to pre-industrial times and, you know, being dirty and struggling for food and we don't have to um but we also don't have to face this dystopian future where i don't know technology rules our lives or whatever. oh i'm not the vision so much isn't that it will rule our lives it will just become a more and more intimate Well, we, I think we covered gamification. Wastewater is your passion. Yeah. yeah, I like wastewater. Maybe I like it because nobody else likes it. I love waste. It's hilarious. Why do you say it's hilarious? And because I have the sense of humor of an eight-year-old. Um... Okay, so do you want me to... <laughs> <laughs> there, There is no way to respond to that, huh? I don't know, do you want a cookie? <laughs> As an yes, I want, I want a cookie and a juice box. Yeah. Well, milk, don't you dip your cookies in milk? I think, I think children are just so keen on sugar, especially in the States. They want to combine the juice box with the cookie. I see. Do you think children That's are naturally predisposed to sugar, or do you think it's just the way we raise them? A bit of both. Mm. Of course, we're wired to really enjoy fats and carbohydrates. Yeah. It's like getting them hooked on drugs early on. 
there is a often cited mouse study showing that the mice administered themselves with sucrose more than cocaine. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. Anyways. Waste, waste, waste. So, nature doesn't know waste. There is no such thing as waste in nature. Um, in nature, when a, a tree grows its leaves, it doesn't care about how much material it uses, and when it's done with a leaf, when autumn comes, it just drops the leaf. Um, and nobody thinks that's a bad thing, except if you're an overworked gardener, maybe. Um, but that leaf then degrades and composts the soil, and it becomes part of the soil that the Greek tree grows from again. So I think that's sort of where we need to get to in our production systems, is not really think of something as waste, but just as the closing of a cycle. At this time, we produce a lot of waste as a species. Mm. There's our garbage and there's our feces. And quite a bit of our garbage ends up, you know, pills, leftovers, whatever, ends up down the drain. And, of course, the bulk of our waste ends up down there, unless you're an outdoorsman and you're on the trail and you decide, oh, looky there, and then plop it there. <laughs> Otherwise, you're probably using a toilet. So, I would say fecal matter is not a bad thing. It's all the potentially hazardous things that's in the waste um, that might be bad. And it's not even just bad, it's bad because we don't know how much of it is in there and we don't know when we've taken it out. Um, so again, the reason why a, a tree's fallen leaf works as not something that's wasted, but something that can go back into the soil, is because there's nothing in that leaf that's bad for the soil. Um, I think what we're doing wrong at the moment is combining things that shouldn't be combined. Um, for example, heavy metals that was in the soil that was or in deep earth. We take out and cover it with some paint layer that shouldn't really be in touch with the metal that we can't really easily separate. Um, and then it becomes waste because we don't have anything else to do with it that doesn't damage something else. So it's not that fecal waste is bad or heavy metals is bad or paint is bad or pharmaceutical residues are bad. It's that they're all mixed together and then we can't get them separated out again. Right. Chlorine becomes much more hazardous when it binds to organic molecules. Mercury becomes hazardous when it becomes methyl, dimethylmercury, out there in the environment. Yeah, so if, I mean, chlorine is very useful, and I'm sure mercury is very useful, but it should be in a place where it can be easily contained. And it, again, if you look like, if you look at nature, and I'm not saying nature should be put placed on this pedestal, nature doesn't have some beneficial, um, idea or some noble cause. I mean, it's pretty hectic in nature as well. Um, but you do have a couple of billion years where that nature sort of tried it out and made it work. Um, but there are environments where 
for example, bacteria live in concentrated sulfuric acid. There are environments where plants can grow in the presence of radioactive substances or heavy metals. But these are initial places like tiny pockets, well, sometimes they're not that tiny, but pockets where this is the dominant way and there isn't something like organic molecules or the, or the organic molecules are not going to react with, um, for example, the sulfuric acid. And so it's okay because it's in an environment where it's adapted and des- I don't want to say designed, but I'm going to say it anyway, where it's designed to work with all those factors. And I think we should get there with our industrial production rather than just mixing everything together that just shouldn't be mixed. Um, and there there are many people working on this, and it is becoming more that way. And they call it cleaner production or the circular economy. Um, so it's hopeful. The circular economy. So I'm thinking of filtration systems, and there are some that are very promising, some nanofiltration systems that allow us to sort out the various things that might be in a river. There's a particular paper by an Indian scientist that I will include in the podcast description that shows the real ingenuity that people have in designing these systems, even when they don't have a lot of funding. So there's, um, I would say if you if you design a system like that, you need to look at several different scales um, because they each have their benefits and they each have their pitfalls. For example, if you have a microsystem, it could get clogged with slightly bigger particles, um, and nanosystems might get deactivated by something that you wouldn't want in there, but that could easily be removed by a macrosystem earlier on. So if you think about, um, let's say, dirty water. So maybe there's something, so, I mean, I work with domestic storage. So our wastewater, after you've showered and you've gone to the toilet and all of that gets mixed, um, there's things in there like toilet paper that you don't want to get onto your microfilters, and so you need something bigger to filter it out. And then there's bacteria that might be very useful for cleaning the water, but if they get onto your nanosystems, they're going to inactivate it. So you want to get them out. And maybe a good way of getting them out is by using plants. I'm just There's several ways of getting them out. Um, but plants are much bigger, but they're friendly towards the nanosystems later on. So while nanotechnology is, is very good and technology is very good, I think you also need to have an understanding of how the system works. Um, as well as the social and political aspects around the system. Um, so that's just my plug for, for saying that technology isn't always just the answer. It's useful, but it needs to be considered in a bigger way. Right. It's like using a hammer on a screw. It requires some human reasoning. Or if all that you have is a hammer, everything looks like nails. Yes, I assume that most of my English-speaking listeners would know what I was hinting at. (laughs) Yeah. And that, and of course, knowing how and when to use different technologies and techniques is just as important as developing them. 
I would say it's more important, yes. Um, I think that's the real crux of the matter is knowing when something is suitable and when not. Uh, and I think that's where the public could really help by thinking about these things more and not get too carried away um, when somebody has some miracle cure that could work for everything. I mean, I'm sure it's a miracle cure for something. It can't work for everything. I have one foot in research, one foot in policy. So I don't, I don't want to play favorites. But, for instance, a desalination system. I imagine there are certain circumstances in which that is absolutely necessary. I'm thinking of a couple Middle Eastern countries. Mm. And there are others in which it is, it's, just not practical at this time because of the amount of electricity it uses and the amount of waste it creates. Mm. Yeah, I think if you have a lot of water that could be cleaned um, and reused, that's a better option than desalinating. So I think desalinating is a great option when you just don't have the water and the only water that you do have is saline, like seawater. Um, but if you do have water and you just need to take care of it better, then that is a more economical option than just trying to make new water out of seawater, for example. In mar- so in modern municipalities around the world, what exactly should be changed to make them more efficient? You know, technical recommendations. From a wastewater perspective only. Yes. I would say, and I, again, some of my colleagues might disagree with me, but I would say unless you're living in high-rise buildings and apartment blocks, dry sanitation is the way to go. So not having a flush toilet anymore. And then if you are in a high-rise building, you should have a, a flush toilet because it becomes difficult to remove the the solid wastes. Um, but then that water should be treated in that building and recycled. Um, and solar desalination, um, or not even desalination, seawater is a good option there because it helps with the treatment of the urine. Um, so, in a nutshell, I think for general suburban life, you need to move to dry sanitation, not have flush toilets, um, and, you know, maybe decentralized, for example, composting or treatment of those wastes. And in high-rise buildings, flush toilets, but where they are treated on-site um, in the building itself, which is actually technology that's already existing and being tried in China, um, for example. Then from an industry point of view, and I think industries are already doing it, certainly in South Africa where we are struggling with water, um, is trying to use less and recycle the water on site and where they do have waste to separate it at the source, so at the industry, you know, on that particular building as opposed to just flushing it down and then making it the municipality's problem to treat a complex stream downstream. Now, night soil is a term that might not be familiar to many people who are not living in the Middle Ages. Well, I suppose even the early 20th, early or late 19th, early 20th centuries. 
but composting human waste sounds sort of disgusting at face value. Maybe. Um, I think when people think of human waste and then they think of composting, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is a poorly managed compost process or, or just a pile of waste that rots and that really smells bad. Um, but a well-managed compost process smells like soil. It smells like the earth just after a rainstorm. Um, the concept of night soil is when they didn't have sewered um, toilets and you would go to the toilet in a I guess if you're poor in a bucket or in a place where then someone would come and empty it out at night. Um, a lot of the properties, um, I know even around where I live in Cape Town, uh, has a tiny road behind the properties. And that's where people with their ox cart or their donkey cart came and collected people's night soil at night. So, But it, again, it comes b- b- down to this hidden thing that's, you flush and forget, you know, or you go to the toilet and when you wake up the next morning, it's all gone, which I think needs to change. Um, I think if you understand your waste and you understand what's in it and you manage it well, it doesn't rot, it doesn't stink, um, it's not the soppy mess, it's actually quite dry if you do it correctly. Um and so I think if we improve our relationship with all the waste that we create, we realize it's not really that bad um, if we do it well. It's when we don't do it well, if we leave it to its own devices, that it starts rotting and attracting rats and so on. Um, and I think it was, so we used to call wastewater treatment works or sewage works um, sewage farms because it was something where you could get value from and get it to the point where it returns to the soil and actually adds value. Now, there might be some concerns about, say, the spread of disease. Yeah, Um, it is a huge concern, and I know that if you do use um, reclaimed sewage sludge to fertilize your fields, um, I know in South Africa you can't export that food to Europe. Um, It depends on which foods you use. If you fertilize trees, for example, um, the fruits are far enough away from from the soil where it was applied. Personally, I understand and I can um, empathize with people who do not want their waste affecting their food. I think it's it's maybe too close. That cycle is too close and you don't have enough um, space for that to be treated effectively. Um, so my research, or, or I'm not working on it right now, but I'd like to in the near future, is looking at what sort of things can we do with that waste for non-food application. And that might be as simple as fertilizing soils where food is not growing, so natural ecosystems, um, you know, so you just build biodiversity and forests, for example, for timber or things like that, uh, or producing uh, chemicals or plastics or, you know, biodegradable plastics in particular, um, that we can use it in the industry, but we, we don't even have to talk about um, I mean, we should talk about it, but realistically speaking, people don't want it. Um, but if we don't have to talk about plastics in the sh- or um, the implications of waste in the short term, then that's fine as well. Well, we could terraform a desert. Yeah, if you have um, water, it would be interesting to see how the deserts change with climate change. 
Um, one of the examples that just came to mind is you can grow uh, mushrooms off the night soil, not for food, but for packaging material, um, because the hyphae creates the spongy material that's good for packaging things in. Yes, if the fungus likes the feces, there are many, many possible applications. Because genetically engineered fungus could produce any number of helpful products. Well, even non-genetically engineered fungus. I need to go soon. Um, Is there anything else you want to talk about? I think we've covered most everything.